Anna's really come a long way after surviving a home invasion while suffering from PTSD. Right, you wouldn't think lightning would hit twice, but that's exactly what happened when she realized she had a stalker. It's so unfortunate that she had nowhere to turn. She wasn't even getting effective support from the police. But she was able to turn it around, which was really awesome, and help victims like herself. What came to my attention was that by this time, I was expecting letters or photographs or phone calls. I, I became as obsessed with my stalker as he was with me. Anne, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Anne, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, how you grew up, family life, kind of let us get to know you? Yes, I had quite a, an uneventful childhood. Uh, Mum, dad, elder sister, uh, twin brother. I grew up in a town, a small town called Kilmarnock, which sits in the southwest coast of Scotland. Uh, my father was in middle management. My mother was a medical secretary. Uh, an uneventful childhood. We were a normal family. But unfortunately, my parents split up when I, uh, I was nine years old. So that, that was the major disruption in my childhood, my childhood life. Um, but out with that, I still held a, a good relationship with my, my my father, who eventually married again. As I grew up, had lots of friends, got on well at school, got my hires. I was very much more towards the, 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 the sciences than I was the literature and the arts. Um, and it, my first job was uh, in an agricultural college as a, a, an assistant scientific officer, which was great fun. Sunshine, summer months, gathering crops, um, protesting. But then I decided that I wanted a career profession that would be more sustainable throughout my life. So I studied podiatric medicine. Uh, and I met my husband in 1979. We got married that year. I was working for the National Health Service as a podiatrist. Uh, my daughter was born in 1984. And so I started to build a private practice, even though I was still working National Health Service. Um, unfortunately, that marriage didn't survive. I was married for 17 years and the marriage broke up. It did break my heart. Um, but we, we remained friends. We remained friends, and my daughter had an excellent relationship with her father. And by 1999, my life started to take a downward turn. First of all, with an armed robbery, um, my daughter and I had moved home. We just bought this house. Uh, first weekend that we'd moved into, we had an armed robbery. Uh, it was a very violent armed robbery that the, the two of us should never have survived. It wasn't us they were after, the previous owners um, had had left, but the criminal grapevine hadn't informed these robbers that the previous owners had just sold the house and moved out, uh, taking the safe with them, because that's what they were after, the safe. So we should really never have survived that robbery. Um, but we did, by by sheer luck, purely sheer luck. Um, and I thought that my worst times were over. I was off sick for three years. I was unable to work. My daughter wasn't well for a while. And eventually in 2002, it was time to get back in my feet again. Uh, my daughter was preparing to go to university. So, you know, that was a hard time. Children flying the nest, the emptiness syndrome. 
But uh, I joined a practice with a colleague and started to build my business again. And I thought my bad times were over. Um, I never ever thought that lightning would strike in the same place twice. Did the police um, catch the robbers, the armed robbery? Did the police catch the people? Yeah, they caught one of the robbers. Uh, The other one ran to ground and we were basically told by the police that um, they've got that plenty of evidence, which they did have. They had uh, masks, gloves, knives, coats, everything. They had masses of uh, evidence to substantiate the crime. And the police were determined that these men would go to jail for a very, very long time after what they did subjected a mother and a daughter to. And I got a phone call one day from the um, prosecutor's office to say that there was no case. Um, the case had been closed, the case had been dropped, and that was it. I couldn't get any information, nobody would tell me anything. At that time, there was really not any victim support at that time. Uh, very little help for victims. We weren't really quite regarded as the other half of a crime. And I was left to pick up the pieces of what was quite a shattered life. Um for both my my daughter and myself. But I did get back on my feet again. But I was failed by the system. I was disappointed in the system. But I thought, well, that's it. It's over. My bad time's over. Um, Put it behind me, get back on my feet and get on with my life again. And that's what I set out to do. Once you started getting back on your feet, was there a lot of PTSD or residual effects from that home invasion? I had quite severe PTSD. It took a long while. I was after the robbery. My my daughter had very bad PTSD, and I think at the time the focus was in trying to help her get better, get over the trauma, to support her because she was only fifteen at the time when it happened. Um, and really, it was when when she left for university. Um, I don't know what, it was the first time I was left living in this house on my own as well, um, with the memories of the robbery. So I was already anxious, still nervous, and the PTSD just kicked in very badly. How did you cope with your PTSD and trauma after the robbery? I sought the help of a psychologist. I had to seek help. I sought professional help at that time. And even now, at, at that time, Getting help under the National Health Service, there's a massively long waiting list. So it took me a long while to access the service. But once I got onto that service, then with the help of a professional, I was able to reduce the symptoms of the PTSD and and really start looking to build my life again. So um, I I started to socialise again. I'd lost an awful lot of confidence, started some dance lessons. I love dancing. Uh, I love, it's a, a, a Scottish sport, I would say, called curling, which is quite a team event. So it wasn't exactly life in the fast lane, but it was a start back into normal social life again. An awful lot of courage to go back out into the world again. Um, and, and it was interesting because it was an armed robbery, it did gain the sympathy of other people uh, which I didn't want sympathy, but people could understand it. It was a tangible event. It was a crime that was well recognised. So once I started stepping back out into the world again and trying to engage in activities and build my confidence, 
I found people to be very supportive, very encouraging. It came out of the blue. It came out of the blue. It was Valentine's Day um, and the postman, um, small white envelope, through my door. You know, Jamie, when I stopped shaving, I didn't like my beard at first, but then it grew on me. Wow, Jake, you got jokes. But when it comes to razors, Athena Club really is the best. The one-of-a-kind blades are enhanced with a revolutionary water-activated serum that has shea butter and hyaluronic acid for a skin-soothing shave with maximum hydration. And the shave foam leaves my skin hydrated and nourished. No more razor burn. They not only have the best razors, but they carry all the self-care essentials you need, from period care to body care, and even a probiotic and a multivitamin. I'm a big fan of probiotics, and since I've been using them, I feel really great. You know, I love knowing that every product is vegan and cruelty-free. That's something that's super important to me. I love that I never run out of blades because they get shipped to me regularly. So it's one less thing I have to worry about. And the razor kit is only $9, which includes two five-blade razor heads, your choice of razor handle color, and a magnetic holder for easy storage. Stop using razors that under-deliver and switch to Athena Club. Sign up today and you'll get 20% off your first order. Just go to athenaclub.com and use promo code STOCKING. That's A-T-H-E-N-A-C-L-U-B.com with promo code STOCKING for 20% off. We'd also like to thank our Patreon members, Brandy T, Maddie M, Ashley N, Hannah L, Anne, Bailey H, Erica M, and Kate B. Thank you so much for joining our Patreon and your support. What happened after this home invasion and you start getting your feet back on the ground and now you have a stalker? I never thought anything about it. I literally just opened the envelope, handwritten envelope, didn't even expect a Valentine because I've not been in the dating scene for years. I hadn't been out um, socialising when I would meet anyone or anyone I was interested in or thought was interested in me. And inside was this filthy Valentine. And I think the shock of why would somebody write, send that to me, a Valentine? Why did somebody write something like that to me? So there was confusion, there was shock, there was disbelief. Um, And I, I actually took it to show a friend. And it was interesting because as I drove up to her house, she opened the door and this is beautiful bouquet of red roses from her partner, massive big boxes of chocolates. And I had this disgusting little Valentine card <clears throat> and she looked at it and said, my goodness, who would send that? I haven't got a clue. So we decided that it was just a, a silly joke, a sick joke, because we were confused. So I threw it in the bin, thought nothing about it, put it behind me. And it must have been about, that was the February the 14th, 2004. It would be the August time, round about the August time, Everything was fine until then. And another envelope was posted through my door, thought nothing about it. But interestingly, I recognised the envelope. I recognised the handwriting. um, And inside was a photograph, a a deviant sexual photograph, a Polaroid photograph. And there was a man lying on a bed from the waist down, wearing women's women's underwear, 
and with a, a camera he he captured that image and that was the image he sent to me. That was disbelief and, and shock because it was unsus I didn't expect anything like that. It came out of the blue, couldn't think who would send that to me. Um and I was I felt it felt it felt sinister. It felt uncomfortable. And I showed it to a friend again, took it to a friend who felt the same as I did, nowhere to place it, couldn't understand it, um, didn't know of anyone who would send such a thing. So I tore it up and put it in the bin because I, I didn't want it in the house. And then very shortly after that, another photograph arrived of a similar nature, this time a bit more explicit. And I remember that was the dawn realization. Some this is is this a stalker? Have I got a stalker? Something was starting to unfold in my life, and then I remembered the Valentine's card, then the first photograph, and realized this is from the same person. This isn't this isn't good. This feels this feels bad. And everything inside me told me that this wasn't going to be the end of the story. I was, sh I, I felt shaky. I was quite, because I'd already had the robbery. I was already nervous living in the house on my own. It was taking me time to build my confidence. And for this to happen, um, I, I wobbled. So rather than throw it in the bin, I decided that I would take this to the police because everything inside me told me some, there's more there's more coming after this. And I only wanted the police to record it. There was nothing to investigate at this time. And as I walked into the police station that day, I put the photograph into an envelope, into a polythene bag, sorry, uh, careful not to handle it, walked into the police station and the officer behind the desk, the desk was high. Obviously, for the police officer's protection, I'm only 5'6". There were other people in the police station. I wasn't exactly reporting a lost mobile phone. This was quite embarrassing because it was a highly sexualised nature. So I tipped up my tiptoes to, to try and whisper, talk quietly to the police officer. Um, I'd like this recorded. First of all, I had the Valentine, told them it with the first photograph, showed him the second photograph and said, I don't know who this is from, but this should not be getting sent to me. I think there's more going to happen. Please record it. He literally took it out of the bag, mishandled it, put all his fingerprints over it and literally, literally threw it back onto the counter rather than handing it to me in a more dignified manner and said there's nothing much to go on, stick it in a drawer and see what happens. Why would I want to stick that in a drawer? Why would I want something like that in my house? It already made me cringe. I was already starting to feel uneasy. There was something dark and sinister about this photograph. Why would any officer tell a woman living on her own to put something like that in a drawer? Anyway, when I left the police station, I was very upset. I felt humiliated. I felt shamed um, and disbelieved. And I didn't know where else to go after that. 
because it was a highly sexualized nature, I didn't really want to say too much to anyone because I felt quite embarrassed about it, that someone would want to send that to me. I didn't want my social activities being brought into question or my personal life being brought into question as if somehow I'd attracted this into my life, which I hadn't, because at that time we lived in a victim-blaming culture. I had a friend who was a senior proprietor for school. She lived in a quite far away in another town. So I decided that I would take this through to her, let her see it. I wanted to gauge her reaction to see what she thought of it in first impression. Um, and so I watched her body language as she took the photograph out of the envelope. And instantly her face turned to disgust. That, any, that, that, that she would be quite distraught and confused and shocked at receiving such a thing from some anonymous person. She was quite annoyed at the treatment that I'd received from the police and instantly said, no, they have got to take notice of this. This is not good. They have got to uh, take this seriously and they've got to believe you. And this has got to be recorded. So she phoned my local police office, uh, police office next day um, and obviously triggered a, a positive response because that very same day, a young officer came out to my home to pick up the, the photograph and take it away to have it recorded. How did this other police officer treat you when he came to your house? He was fine, actually. He literally just arrived, came in, took the photograph, looked at it, was quite shocked at what he saw. And he said, I haven't got a clue about this type of thing. All I've been asked to do is pick it up and take it back to the station and record it. And that was it. And did they follow up with anything with that photograph with you? No, not at all. No, no, nothing. Nothing happened. He literally just did what he was asked to do and that was it. Um, didn't take a statement, didn't ask anything about what else had happened. He literally just arrived at the door, picked up the photograph and that was it. So, so shortly after that, um, I started to receive letters coming, you know, um, same envelope, same little envelope, same neat handwriting, starting to arrive in my, my um, mat through the post. And I knew this was from, from, from whoever this was, I assumed must be male. And the letters started off quite endearing, but they were handwritten, they were written in poetry style, numbered paragraphs. Someone had taken quite a lot of time to sit and write these po poetic style um, letters to me. And it was all about uh, him and I in an embrace and engaging in a sexual act, but this time I would be the one that would be in control. It would be a taster event and I would enjoy it. And he was going to take me to places that I'd never been before. And, and as the letters, as more letters arrived, along with more photographs, they became more sadistic. And they spoke about rape, bondage and torture. And that this is what I was wanting, and he would be the one to do it. He'd even chosen the location. His, his letters were, were graphic. 
about what the sexual act would be. So it wasn't the frequency of the letters that increased, it was the content became more dark, more sinister, more violent, more sadistic. And this would be his reality. This would be his reality one day. He seemed to know an awful lot about me. Um, I used to have horses. I have photographed, I had photographs of my, some of my horses um, that sitting on the sideboard at one point. And he would make reference to horse riding. So I knew it was someone I knew, but I didn't know in what context I knew this person. I also didn't know whether he really did know or whether he was coming round my property and looking through my window when I was at work. He knew where I worked. He just seemed to know more about me than I knew about him. Did you think that it could have been somebody involved in the home invasion at all? We did think that at one time there was a connection to it, um, but we couldn't find the connection couldn't make the connection, it, it, it didn't make sense. The only connection that I could make, but it was only a, a very light assumption, was that after the robbery, that was that was um, on the local news and local radio, it was all over the town, it was in the local newspapers. So most people knew about the robbery. Anyway, so if this person was local, it wouldn't have been hard to have known about this robbery. And the only connection or link that I can make that he thought I might be a vulnerable person and easily an easy target because I already had vulnerability. How often were the letters coming at this point? I would say they were coming every week, two week calls started as well. So it was a whole mixture of different behaviours. So it was random. It was random. Sometimes they would stop for two weeks. Sometimes they would come every week. And then other times they would stop. Sometimes it would be three weeks. At one point, at one point I had, um, they stopped for about three months. The following summer, they stopped for three months. And what, what came to my attention was that by this time, I was expecting letters or photographs or phone calls. I, I became as obsessed with my stalker as he was with me. My clinic was only five minutes from the house. And I would imagine or that anticipatory anxiety that I might get a letter or a photograph and even at lunchtime, I would run home, which I never used to do, to see if something had come from my stalker. But for three months, the, that break of three months through time, I started to think, he's gone. He's left me alone. He's got fed up. Goodness knows what's happened to him. But he's stopped. He's decided to stop. And very slowly, it was only then I realised how tense and anxious that I had been because the longer it had stopped for, the more I started to feel more relaxed, the more I started to, I could just start to feel the tension leaving my body. Um, so I didn't realise how tense I was. And just when I started to feel safe again, thinking it's over, it's gone. They started 
back up again. What were the phone calls like? There were silent phone calls. They were always in the middle of the night. Uh, and it was literally someone just phoning. <clears throat> there was always another person at the other end of that phone, maybe breathing, and then they would just hang up. And then sometimes that would happen five to six times a night. But because I knew this was connected to the stalker, by that time my anxiety has triggered off and I wasn't sleeping very well. And every night I went to bed, I wondered if there was going to be the phone calls. But I also didn't know whether my stalker was outside or because I didn't know who it was, because he remained anonymous, meant it could be anyone and it could be everyone that was stalking me. So <clears throat> that hyper hypervigilance was there. And eventually I became so scared that um, I, I didn't change at night. I slept in my tracksuit bottoms. I had a top on. It was as if I was waiting, just waiting, waiting, waiting for something to happen. But unlike the robbery, I'd already been attacked in my own home, which was in the middle of the night. And so night times were frightening for me because I already had the memory of what happened before. And this time I decided I'm going to be prepared. I had knives hidden under my pillows. I had knives all around the house. I got to the stage where, see, he was also sending me items of ladies' underwear, stockings, pants, suspenders, panties, um, gusset with panties, all that type of thing. And he would send these photographs to let me see he was wearing my things. And then he would send me packages of um, ladies' underwear to say, these are the things you've lent me. I'm letting you have them back, but just for a short time. So th there was a whole array of different types of behaviours coming through. The underwear and things, it was something that he had bought and then put on and then sent to you? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. But he claimed they were mine. At one point, he sent me photographs wearing riding jodhpurs, riding pants, saying that... Um, He's got my riding pants and how well they fit him. You know, and I, I, of course, I had horses, so that's a familiar language. So it was so bizarre. It was unusual. Couldn't think who this person was. Couldn't think of anyone that I'd met that would behave in such a manner. But I just knew this time the, the anxiety was building. Um, I was scared. I was scared at night time. I wasn't sleeping that well. It got to the point where I didn't even, at night time, I didn't even want to put on the television or the radio. I had silence in the house because I was on alert waiting on my stalker to call just in case my stalker did call. I needed um, to know if there was a, a noise outside or a rustle of the leaves. So for months I lived in silence. I creeped about the house. I even hid my car so that he wouldn't know that I was maybe at home. I kept my curtains drawn day and night so that he couldn't look inside my house. Um, and, and they were my safety-seeking behaviours. And eventually, because I didn't know who this was, 
whenever I went out anywhere, I tried to keep dancing to try and not become socially isolated. But I even wondered if my stalker was someone that saw me at the dancing. Um, it was dance lessons. There were a lot of single females there as well as a lot of single men. There were couples there. I thought it was quite a safe environment. But even going to the supermarket, you know, my my stalker could have been anyone. Maybe he'd followed me there. My nerves couldn't take it any longer. And slowly I, I withdrew. I started to withdraw. And it was safer staying at home than it was trying to go out. So his freedom then became my incarceration. And did your friends and family know the toll that this was taking on you? Well, I, I tried to tell them. I tried to tell them, and I couldn't have told my mother. My mother would have got so anxious. She would have taken on all the anxiety of being stalked herself when she wasn't. So, And she always was an anxious person, so I would never have told her. I didn't want to tell my father because he's not always the most supporting or empathic person. He just says, you're a strong person, pull your socks up, you'll be fine. Um, because I did try and tell him that's what he told me. Um, when I told friends, it wasn't that they didn't want to listen, they just didn't get it. And what they would say is, oh, it, must, it must be someone you know, or don't worry, or, you know, you're a strong person, you'll be fine. This Whoever it is will soon get fed up. And I kept receiving all these glib responses, like, why don't you go and buy a dog, buy a big dog? Well, I, I don't want a dog. <laughs> I don't want to walk a dog. I don't want a dog barking at noises that don't mean anything and because that would set my, my alarms off. And then why don't you just move house? Well, actually, moving houses costs a lot of money and moving house isn't going to get rid of a stalker. So the friends weren't that supportive or they didn't know how to support in the correct way. But what I did, what I became aware of is that friends didn't ask me over to have a coffee. And I now understand why it doesn't mean it didn't hurt. But all of a sudden they started withdrawing from me and I withdrew from them. And I found and I realised that people didn't want to come near me. And it's as if they didn't want involved with my stalker. And maybe they were scared that my stalker, I would alert them to where they lived and the stalker would start to cause them problems. So I soon lost touch with a lot of my friends. Um, I was still trying to work. My work was starting to suffer through the nervous exhaustion. I stopped seeing male clients because um, I was scared it was someone I met at work. I had two clinics. I had uh, three days podiatry clinic and, uh, with one colleague and then another two days a colleague in a, a neighbouring town and he phoned to say that he didn't want me there any longer because he didn't want me bringing any trouble onto the doorstep of his business. So I lost my in half my income literally overnight. So all I was doing was trying to keep working. I had, I had responsibilities. I had the house. I had my daughter. I was trying to support her through university, and bit by bit, my world was starting to crumble.
in every way and there was nothing that I could do to stop it. What were you doing to try to figure out who it was? Were you asking random people? Were you just like, were you voicing your your thoughts on who it could be? I, I didn't even know who to ask. That was the problem because um, th- there was no one that I could ask, to be quite honest, because I'd only just started back onto the social scene after the after the robbery. I didn't really have male friends per se. I had female friends. I hadn't been on the dating scene uh, for years. Um, what I did do every time a police officer came to pick up one of the, the letters or the photographs, because I phoned them to come and collect it, um, none of the officers that I came into contact with had any understanding of this type of behaviour. They said that anyway, and police officers of 25 years. Um, they said that it's something they'd never heard of, which I found surprising. I said, well, it must happen to people. Stalking must be happening. Uh, but not this type of stalking. Not this type. Um, they they weren't interested, to be quite honest, but I did ask them. They did ask me for a list of um, names, men that I knew, no matter you know in what, what capacity casual acquaintances. So I gave them a list of any names I knew that were men. I think I had about 15 names on. People that weren't even connected to me, but they were males. They'd been in my company in some capacity. It must be about 15, 20 maybe. And they said that they would work through that list. I found out much later on, after the, everything had uh, the case was over, that they hadn't bothered working through the list. My stalker was on that list. My stalker was on that list. And they hadn't even bothered. Why ask someone for a list if you're not if they're not even going to bother investigating it? So my fear was not just my stalker, there was no one I could feel for the, for protection. And the police it was about victim blaming, gender based attitudes. So one day uh, I was so upset, I phoned my father. I was in tears saying, I, I'm not coping any longer. Um, this is getting worse. I, I don't know what to do any longer. The police aren't that interested. And he actually phoned my brother. Um, my brother. My brother and I don't have a great relationship, I hasten to add, so I didn't want to phone him. <clears throat> and my brother was a... Um, Detective Chief Superintendent with the Metropolitan Police. He phoned my local. My brother was so concerned because my brother lost a very close friend to a stalker, Jill Dando, the newsreader. So he, my brother understood what stalking was and he was very concerned. So he phoned my local police station and said, CID must be involved in this. This is not a case for normal police officers, um, which which was wonderful of them. And then one night at 10 o'clock, must have been about 9 or 10 o'clock, in the middle of the winter, someone knocked on my door unexpectedly. And I looked out the window and there were two men standing in plain clothes. So I opened the door, 
two police officers, CID officers, had come to visit me. Now, two plainclothes men came to visit a woman on her own at night, a dark night with no warning, a woman who's waiting on her stalker to call. And when they came in, they um, they they didn't they weren't interested in the case. They just they were annoyed that my brother had tried to phone them. Uh, my brother had phoned them. I had friends in high places pulling strings, and they literally humiliated me by saying that's what happens to single women out there, attracting the wrong type. So all of a sudden, I started to have my my personal life, my social life coming under scrutiny, being judged when that wasn't the case. And when I actually asked these officers, do you know anything about this case? And they said, no, we're far too busy to read your file. And with that, they left. They were more angry that um, my brother had called them than they were interested in the case. So by this time, my I've lost half my income, my weight's falling off, my hair's falling out, I'm getting terrible migraines, my, my gums and abscesses. Um, and I actually, at one time, I think the stress, the anxiety, I became so unwell that I actually thought I was going to have a stroke or a heart attack because I used to feel these weird sensations in my body, but I think that was my nervous system starting to burn out because of what I'd been living with for so long. And I used to lie at night sometimes wishing that I wasn't here because it was the only way to only way to get escape what had become a living nightmare. And with the joy of living when the, when the pain of living outweigh, outweighs the joy, there's no point in being here. Because I didn't know how this was going to end. And I didn't even know if I would ever survive this if my stalker carried out his attack. And I and if I lived after it, I didn't think I would ever recover from it anyway. And the only thing that kept me on this earth was my daughter. Because I couldn't bear leaving her and I couldn't bear the thought of hurting her by doing what I would really like to have done. Had my daughter not been here, I'm not sure I would have hung around this earth because life had just become far too painful. How was, she, how was your daughter dealing with all this when this was going on? She struggled with it. She really did. It wasn't that she didn't care. She struggled, but she was in a university. She was living away from home. And at that time, because of the robbery, um, we had to have special measures put in place for her at the university in the halls of residence um, because she was still nervous after the robbery. It was quite. A, it was such a traumatic event. So I was try, trying to downplay it um, for her, although I had to be honest and tell her about it. And the odd time she did come home, I had to make sure the doors were locked. Um, and I, I was scared she would answer the phone if we got one of these weird phone calls. But anyway, she was fine. But I tried to be the uh, strong mum for mother for her. 
But there was one time she did come home. She was studying for her exams and she came home on study leave. I was working and I said to her, you know, do not answer the phone and do not answer the door. She knew there was a stalker somewhere. About an hour and a half into the day, I received a phone call from her and she was absolutely hysterical that someone was trying to get in the house. Someone was rattling at the door trying to get in the house. And she was so hysterical. By the time I, I literally just jumped in the car and got home um, and there was no one there. Now, that's not like her to react. So was it the stalker? I really haven't got a clue whether it was or not, but the police would not come out and investigate to help find out who had been doing that at the house. So she wouldn't come home after that. She just said, Mum, I don't feel safe with you any longer. I'm not coming back home. So I've now lost my daughter again, because after the robbery, she went to live with her dad for a year, because she was too scared to live here. It took me a year to encourage her to come back and live in this house with me. What was the turning point where things changed and you started realizing who your stalker was? What led up to that? I received a phone call. It was one wet, windy November, miserable November night here. The night, the, the nights were dark. I received a phone call from a chap that I barely knew, but he was looking for some professional advice from me. I'd literally just got home from work. Another envelope with the most horrible letter was in it, even more sadistic, more violent than the previous one. My mood was low. I was tired. I was worn down. And he detected my low demeanour and said, what's wrong with you? Are you all right? And I said, no, I'm not all right. And I disclosed to him, told him I had a stalker. And I don't know why I disclosed to him. I think it was a breaking point. And he said, Mike, who would do that to you? Who, who would do that to you, Anne, after what you've been through? Because he knew about the robbery. And he said, and what, what are the police doing? Police can't, aren't interested. Police aren't bothered. He said, Anne, he said, I'll support you in any way I can. You know, you sound exhausted. Yes, I am exhausted. I'm not sleeping well at night. He said, well, look, I've got a, a spare bedroom. Why don't you come over, get some respite? I said, no, no, it's OK, thank you. I said, I'm better staying in my own house because at least I know the noises in this house, this house. I know what's normal and what's not normal. You know, he said, if you ever want a night's sleep, I'll come over and sleep on the couch and let you try and get a decent night's sleep because you're sounding absolutely awful, which I didn't take him up on, I hasten to add. Um, but he was the only one that seemed to want to listen. He's, he was the only one that seemed to understand what I was going through. He was the only one that actually offered me support and said, if anything happens, just phone me, text me. I will be there. So for the first time in all, and since it started, I had a lifeline, someone that I could contact. So he kept in touch with me every now and again. He did a couple of odd jobs around the house because the washing machine broke down and flooded the kitchen. Little tiny things. Um, a very softly, soft-spoken man, very gentle man. Um, very respectable man, I hasten to add. 
So anyway, my daughter and I went to Portugal and I received a text from him asking um, how we were having, I think he knew I was, we were going to Portugal, having a good time. And he said, do you want anything? Do you want me to go and look after the house? Do you want me to pop round to the house to check it? And I said, no, the house is all locked up. Fine, thank you. And then he said, OK, then. And this is all in text message. At the bottom of the text message, I got this dirty slogan that had the same tone as what was written in the letters. And then I realised he was my stalker. He was the he was the crazy man that he me aligned for stalking me. He was that person. So he'd be behind the scenes. He was the the psychopath, the stalker, the sexual predator. And yet here he was being my only supportive friend. And that was that was big. And you just put it all together because the one text had the same tone as the others. Mm-hmm. It was a t- it was a slogan. There was something in that slogan um, that what he'd written was quite vulgar, to be quite honest. And it was as vulgar as what was written in the letters. So whether he'd been drinking that night, goodness only knows whether he'd let his guard down. But I texted him back and said, "What was that you said to me?" And he said, oh, that was a mistake. That wasn't meant for you. That was meant for another friend. Uh, I said, no, I think that was meant for me. And he said, no, 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 no. I would never hurt you. You're my very special friend. And that's when I knew this man's more dangerous. This man's dangerous. And he was my he he was the the man, and I I can't I can't remember the shock. I think I've ever have you ever felt that dizzy way with shock? And because he'd blown his cover, because I challenged him, because he kept saying, "Tell me what the slogan said. Tell me what the slogan said." He was wanting me to repeat to him this filthy slogan because he was obviously getting his fix that way. His patho- he was obviously playing out his pathology. And all I text back and said was, you, you're a filthy pervert for, for doing this to me. And that's when I received the message saying, you're now going to suffer for what you've just said. So I realised that I had um, upset the lion in the cage, so to speak. And I became even more scared than I was before. I was dreading coming home at that point. And I was terrified of telling my daughter because this was our holiday to be normal for a week. And and here, this has happened. So, did you go to the police right away? <clears throat> Interestingly, I did. And as soon as I got home, because I was now even more scared than I was scared, because he had blown his cover, I knew who he was. He was going to make me suffer because he was angry. Um, so the police called him in for DNA testing. And see, the police officer said, to, he actually said to me, this police officer, he said, do you know, I asked, 
when when this um, stalker was taken in for DNA, the stalker had actually said to the police officer, I know why I'm here. And the police officer decided not to pursue that line of of, of questioning. He said, I, I felt better just leaving. Well, why? Because you might have got the confession, the admission then. So my stalker was released. Nothing happened. Um, and this would be about end of August, September time. Everything was quiet. And then about December time, the silent phone call started again. I didn't receive it. I didn't receive any more photographs or letters, but then the silent phone calls started again. So I phoned the police and they quickly got through the DNA results and they had a match to an item of the clothing. They raided his house. He had a room, a room specifically set up for, for photographs. He had a wardrobe full of women's clothes. His bed was there. He had racks of women's shoes, high-heeled court shoes. He had suspenders and bras and pants and everything like that. And he had the next letter in preparation that he was going to send me. So they caught him. It was like a shrine. Everything was there. So he was charged. And at that time, there was no such crime of stalking. I wasn't even a victim, I hasten to add. It was a victimless crime because there was no crime, there is no victim. Um, and of course, I was always made to feel that I was the one that was imagining threat where no threat existed. I was the one that was overreacting. Because whenever I asked the police for a, um, a risk assessment, they wouldn't give me one. Whenever I asked them for a profile, they wouldn't do it. And what they kept saying to me is, this man will have, he'll have to attack you first before we can do anything. I was being forced to engage in a system that mandated a physical attack before anything would happen. So is it any wonder women were scared to report sexual abuse or any type of crime against them where there was not a physical attack? Does it make sense now why women were being murdered? It wasn't that they weren't asking for help. It's because they were getting told what I was told. Something will have to happen first before we can help you. What was he charged with? Well, at that time in Scotland, it was the common law breach of the peace. It was a, a wide-ranging catch-all piece of legislation. It caught traffic fines. It caught noise in the street. It caught just one of these catch-all um, laws of of didn't specify anything but there's something about it being this was above that type of law there was something sinister something dark something devious for two years to torture another person's mind a, a law like breach of the peace does, doesn't reflect on that but that's all there was at the time so anyway he was charged um but the stalking still continued. But I, but this time I was coming home and from work, what work I had left, because it had all more or less crumbled. And there was things moving about my garden. It was like having a calling card. It was like gaslighting, thinking, I'm sure I didn't have that there. I'm sure that wasn't there when I left this morning. 
And there was a particular big piece of stone, a massive stone, a broken slab, and it kept appearing outside my patio doors. And every time it appeared, I would put it back. And every time I put it back, it came back again. Now, I can't within a stalking context, it never happened before. So why would it start happening now? So I suspected it was my stalker. Uh, and I, I, I phoned the, 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 the police, but they weren't interested. They weren't interested. They just said, by the way, CID was now on board because they had been given my case file. That's an inter This is interesting. So when my stalker was caught, the police came and visited me and said, we're now handing your case file over to CID, which I don't know why we need the CID once we've discovered who it is. I always assumed they would have CID to discover who the, the, the person was. Anyway, and I said, well, who have you handed over to? So they told me the name, same name of the officer that came and sat in my kitchen and humiliated me. And I said, well, I'll not work with that man. That man will never be back in my house again after the way he spoke to me, after the way he treated me. Um, and he said, well, it's too late. He's the best officer we've got, which is quite worrying, to be quite honest. And he said, actually, I think you'll find that he's changed his attitude towards this. He's now read your file. If you remember, he sat at my kitchen and said that he'd been far too busy to read my file. He's now read your file and he's absolutely shocked at what he's read. Well, he's only months too late. He should have read it way back and been shocked then. So he had my file. He was the person that raided my stalker's house. He brought over a bag of clothes, of women's underwear and clothes and shoes to say that this is what we've um, taken from the house. We're going to hopefully try and use this as evidence. And would I look through this bag and see if I recognised anything? Well, do you know any woman that would go through a black bag full of underwear and stockings and suspenders in front of a man and to identify them as hers. <laughs> it, it, it just cannot get any worse, or so it seems. But in the bag was a pair of jodhpurs, cream jodhpurs riding pants. And I said, well, I, I can't say that they're mine. They were the ones he wore in one of the photographs. I said, but I, did, I do have... Um, cream riding pants. I'm not sure whether they've gone missing or not. He said, I said, in fact, I haven't ridden for a while. I wouldn't even know where they are. He said, why don't you try them on and see if they fit? Now, number one, why would I want to try on the riding pants that my stalker has been wearing and probably masturbating over, number one? Secondly, that would put my DNA in those which may secure a good conviction, I hasten to add. But at that time, I didn't think that that was what the intention was. So anyway, I never identified anything out that bag. It was too embarrassing, too humiliating, and I hadn't a clue whose stuff it was. It wasn't mine anyway, let's put it that way. So my stalker was... Um, going to trial 
well, the court case was set. It was a, I'm not sure in America, but in Scotland, we call it a sheriff summary. Now, a sheriff summary for two years of being targeted by a stalker, a sadistic stalker, two years of my life being ruined, of my mental health being ruined, my physical health being ruined, the torture to, in, to be tried in a sheriff summary court. So that made me very angry. And then I received a phone call um, from the Procurator Fiscal's office, the prosecutor's office, to say that um, it was over because they'd entered into a plea bargain. My stalker pled guilty and they'd entered into a plea bargain with my stalker. And so if you think of the range of, of behaviours over two years, there was a lot of behaviours. And he plea bargained away all these behaviours apart from a few letters. All gone. So to the outside eye, what he has pled guilty to is this, not this. And it makes the my response, my reaction, look completely disproportionate to what the police are saying or the 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 courts are saying have actually happened. So that makes me out to be the focus on me for my stability and overreaction and overimagination because the two don't add up. And I was angry at that because I never got the chance to, I wanted to see my stalker go to court. I wanted to stand in court and see him be open to the judgment of the court for his full range of behaviours and I wanted to see him being punished, and I was denied that opportunity. What were the next steps that you took after you weren't able to get justice in this case? Well, I decided that I would. I wanted to go and see my stalker being sentenced. I was advised not to go and see my stalker being sentenced because it might trigger him again. That was the police. So all of a sudden, they see him as a danger again. So I sat in the public gallery and I listened to the adversarial justice play out. And my stalker's lawyer, defence lawyer, put forward a 20-minute plea for mercy. Um, that he was a good citizen, a good brother, a hard worker, blah, 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 blah. And my stalker apologised to the court. No one ever, he never apologised to me. Even in despite of a social work report stating a reoffending, the sheriff, in his opinion, decided my stalker wasn't a danger to the public. I became disregarded at that point, and my stalker received 260 hours community service, three hours on the sex offenders register, and he walked out of that court to lead his life as he had before. To this day, the sheriff has never heard my voice or what it was like for me, or me as being a good mother, a hard-working citizen, someone that had never done any wrong in her life. The sheriff didn't even know what I looked like. So as my stalker walked out of the court that day, no one could guarantee that he would respect his court orders. I had a five-year non-harassment order. I was granted that at least but no one would guarantee he would respect these. And I'd already been attacked in my own home. I'd already lived with two years of torture and I wasn't going to take 
um, the risk of being tacked a second time. And so I relocated to another town over 80 miles away. Did that stop him? Aha, uh-huh, because he didn't know where I he didn't know where I was. I broke the links. I changed my name, changed my car, changed my mobile number. I only told a, a one or two very close friends where I'd gone, so he wouldn't be able to trace me. So I was over eighty miles away, so he never he, he wouldn't know where to find me. Yeah, but he continued his life where I was lived. Air was my home of thirty years. That my friends, my family. I lost the business that I'd worked so hard to build up after the robbery. Whereas he just got on with his life. All of a sudden, I've now in a living in a strange town. I can't get a job. Um, I didn't know anyone. Um, I worked at a coffee shop for six pound an hour at one point. I was the one that was paying the price of my stalker's behavior. He didn't pay the price. At this point in your life, when you had to actually uproot and start your life over and he was able to basically be free and live his own life with pretty much no real repercussions from what he did to you, what were your next steps? Well, I realized that my life, my safety was of no interest to the criminal justice system. And I realized that my story was no different to thousands of stories out there of other victims of stalking who who were not believed, who were devalued, who were being told to be attacked. And, and you know, it, it, it does, it takes me back to, you know, who is it that decides? Who is it decides whose voice should be heard and whose voice should be silenced? And, and what's happened to all those voices that have been silenced, all those people that have been traumatised, hurt, damaged? Some some have damaged too great to repair. Where are they? Those people that have been ignored. And I decided that this must change, that what happened to me, I was angry because what happened to me must never be allowed to happen to another person. And I was going to stand up and speak out and be the voice of those that had been, that were being stalked or had been stalked. Be the voice of those people who were too scared or frightened to stand up and speak out for themselves. And I was determined that stalking should be recognised as a criminal offence and that I wanted victims' rights within the criminal justice system. I wanted the victims to have a voice and a place within the criminal justice system. And that launched my campaign, Action Scotland Against Stalking. I held a seminar and back in air where I was stalked. I waived my right to anonymity and I spoke out publicly. And I launched my campaign, Action Scotland Against Stalking. And I asked Scotland to come behind me. The police weren't interested in a specific offence. Neither was the Scottish Government or the Crown Office. But I put a call out for victims to come forward. I created a platform for their voices to be heard so that we could raise awareness to the suffering and the plight of people that were being ignored, that were being damaged. And collectively, we drove forward a hard campaign and we got stalking recognised as a criminal offence. 
I then took the campaign to England and Wales and did the same and then took it across Europe. And stalking is a, as a crime across all European states now. Congratulations. That's great that you were able to do that. How did that change the law? Well, it, it recognises stalking as a victim-defined crime. Uh, the law, um, it's not about the behaviours, it's about the impact on the victim. So the, this, the, stalking, the stalking law um, actually introduced psychological harm, impact, as a, a criteria of a criminal offence, and that was the first time ever that had happened because it was a system that only recognised physical offences. And so here we now have um, the victim's voice now taking centre stage within the criminal justice process. So that was a landmark for victims. And it was also a landmark for victims' rights because we managed to get um, the Rights Victims and Witnesses Act into Scotland. Other organisations were on board with that, I hasten to add. But all of a sudden, victims have a voice and a place within the criminal justice system. And it's about making justice work for victims. And because the adversarial model of justice, the law that I brought in, because it it was a changed paradigm and placed the impact on the victim as the, as the gravamen of the offence, that did not fit well within the model of justice, the adversarial model that's designed for criminals only and designed for physical offences. So that has triggered reforms within our criminal justice system to accommodate victims and victims' voices. You've really given uh, a voice to people that didn't have one. That's so great that you're able to accomplish that. We've helped a lot of people. The, the campaign achieved us objectives, and we managed to... And it wasn't just about getting a piece of legislation into law. That's a piece of paper. I didn't even celebrate when that happened because it was the realisation that the work had only just started. And it was about embedding that law into practice, getting the police to use it. It was bridging the gap between um, knowledge and awareness and getting a piece of law to work. And so I delivered training to police, to Crown Office staff, to sheriffs. I delivered training to victim support. I did it, and I, I didn't have any money at the time, I hasten to add, because at that time it wasn't a charity. The campaign, I had no public funding. I held down three jobs to drive forward that campaign. I paid for it all myself. And for the first... Um, um, and for the first five years of the charity, actually, again, stocking that came out of my own pocket as well to keep that charity alive. We now have funding. We don't have a lot of funding, but we've started on the funding bandwagon. But all those years, I, I have held down three jobs and paid for all this work. That's how important it is. And it's not about the money, but a campaign run and no funding, outside funding, it has the overpowering belief that change, it's not that change needs, change needs to happen, change must happen when someone goes to this level of hard work. Do you have any advice for our listeners who are, you know, trying to fight back and trying to speak out how you were able to um, 
you know, stay on that path when it would have been really easy to give up? It would have been easy to give up, but then I believe in justice. I'm part of, I believe in democracy. I'm part of that process. And the, those that are in government are only as good as the people that voted them in. And the people that voted them in are only as good as the government in place. So I'm entitled to have a voice and to have things right for victims in Scotland because I am part of that process. And so that's what made me stand up. I'm worth more than that. And I'm not going to hide away like an animal like the rest of my life. The system was wrong and the system had to change. And I just felt the, there was a human cause. There was a human rights cause. It was a humanistic campaign. And I saw the opportunity to use my experience. When you hear stories from victims that you've helped through your organization, how does that make you feel? It feels good that I can help people, that I still have that ability. I will still um, be their voice. I'll be there to support them if they need me. We've set up um, our services there for them. We're developing that service. I just know it's the right thing to do. It's not about kudos. There's no kudos in this. This is hard work. This is working seven days a week. This is this is exhausting work. So there's no kudos there. There is no private. It's a humanistic campaign and there are people suffering. And because I know what that suffering is, I have the power to help them and do something about that. And because we've become well-known, we're a very well-respected charity. We work closely with the police. We work closely with the Scottish Government and the Crown Office. They have got to know me over the years that they now hold enough respect that if I contact them about a victim that's falling through the net, then they will try and review that case. They will try and review and recover that case and get justice for that victim. So there's a change of social attitudes right across the UK and we're working with the rest of Europe to try and do the same across there because we need to change these attitudes. But it's got to be done in the right manner. We've got to encourage um, the police, the Crown Office, the governments to work with us, not attack them. They got it wrong, but it's not about getting wrong. It's about helping them get it right and that's what's important and supporting them to get it right. You've really done so much to help others. Um, what's next on your list? Well, we've got a few things on the agenda. Um, the charity, we're applying for more funding. The charity will fly on its own. Um, I will not be heading up the charity forever. I don't need to. My aim was to get this charity off the ground, set up the services for victims. I can take a step back, maybe go back on the board. But we've got some good work going on in the charity. We're about to launch our international centre of stocking centre of excellence uh, for research. We've joined with uh, a project with University West of Scotland. So there's a lot going to be happening on 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 that side. Now it doesn't mean that this this charity does not belong to me. This charity belongs to the trustees and it belongs to the people. And once this charity is sustainable the foundations are solid, then that charity will, will fly on its own. And 
I don't know what will happen to me, to be quite honest. I'll just have to wait and see what the future brings, I suppose. Maybe have a normal life again. <laughs> that would be incredible. And if our listeners want to know more about your organization, where can they find information about that? If they go onto the web, um, we have our website, www.actionagainstalking.org. We're, we're in the process of redesigning our website. It's going to be a more interactive website for victims who contact us. We will have an area for professionals because we've now got accredited training programs. Our aim is to develop national standards in training for across the country. Um, we have got a through care support service for victims. So anyone who is out there, if you are being stalked, uh, we have a free phone number. We have an email support helpline. Um, drop us a note. We do have victims from other countries contact us. We have uh, we're part of the Victim Support Europe referral service. So if you can't find support in your own country, come to us and we will find that support for you. Yeah, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me to um, speak on this show. It's been an absolute honour to have that invitation. Um, but I do want victims out there, victims who are listening to your programme, victims who are being stalked, who are not alone. There is a lot of work being done to try and get this crime recognised. Um, and I'm not going to say be brave because that's very hard when you're being start, you know, when you're being stalked by someone and you're scared and frightened. But just know there are people trying their very best to try and make this better for you. If anyone out there is in need of help or is a victim of stalking, please reach out. You can find a list of resources on our Instagram at Strictly Stalking Pod. If you'd like to share your story with us on Strictly Stalking, you can reach us at strictlystalkingpod at gmail.com. That's strictlystalkingpod at gmail.com. And now we're on Patreon, where you can sign up for exclusive bonus episodes, case files, and check out show merchandise. Just go to patreon.com slash strictlystalking. I'm Jake Deptula. And I'm Jamie Beebe. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Strictly Stalking. Strictly Stalking.